Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast Podcast. Thanks for joining us for our study through the book of 2 Corinthians. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. In it, Paul gets very personal about his own shortcomings, and he comforts the believers in Corinth. But he also teaches us that by embracing our own weakness, we are able to experience God's strength. Grab your Bibles, and let's jump in. So if you would stand with me and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Again, this is 2 Corinthians 6, 14. And we'll be finishing this chapter in the first verse of chapter 7. And it says there, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I would dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out of their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilements of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You may be seated. I've really been enjoying the study through 2 Corinthians and uh, Ryan's message last week. He mentioned uh, just kind of that background of this letter that Paul is, in essence, continuing this defense of his apostleship, his ministry, but also as an eyewitness of one who was personally called by Jesus to preach the gospel. All this was being questioned. And the Corinthians challenged him because worldly influences had infiltrated the church. They had come into the church. They had adopted many of these things. And in the study of that first part of chapter 6, Paul explained the importance of his conduct in the ministry and how it was characterized by spiritual endurance and and our need for spiritual endurance. And, And Ryan gave us five things there. Uh, I think they'll be up on your screen. Spiritual endurance is formed in suffering. Spiritual endurance is cultivated in virtue. Spiritual endurance is unwavering in opposition, withstands failure or success, and is based upon the right perspective. But again, there were those in the community of believers in Corinth that saw these examples of endurance in Paul's life, but they saw them rather as liabilities in his life. They they weren't benefits. They're like, you know, Paul, you've suffered too much. Uh, Paul's purity, patience, kindness, and love, they were actually seen as signs of weakness as a leader. Not to mention that he was a boring public speaker. And and, and then Paul had, you just have too many enemies, and you failed too often, you didn't, and, and you didn't declare your victories enough. 
These were all character flaws that they were seeing. And furthermore, that Paul had the kind of this upside-down view of authority, of influence, power, and position. In, in their minds, his perspective on life was all wrong. But these five areas actually demonstrate the work and the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within Paul. It, de it demonstrated the very heart of Jesus Christ, the one who called him, who calls us. As genuine followers of Jesus, we are able to endure in suffering, maintain godly character in the face of persecution, unwavering even when opposed, committed to truth whether we are well off or in great need. And keeping our eyes, helping us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus who both knows us and defines our true value and purpose. Amen? The Lord wants to restore that perspective in us. This perspective in all life with all of its joys, its sorrows. And, and, and as Ryan mentioned last week, the question Paul seems to be asking the Corinthians and you and I, are we willing to expand our capacity to receive and give the love of Christ? Will the love of Jesus, Jesus displayed through the gospel expand or increase our endurance until he returns? So having kind of or closed that discussion on the matter of his authority, Paul turns his attention really once again to pleading with the body, the, the body of believers there, to remember his love for them and God's love for them. You see, there's still some kind of lingering hurt between them, as mentioned there in that last verse. But Paul points out they're feeling that restraint in their affections for him and their reluctance to respond because there still remains in them a restrained affection for the truth. Again, 1 Corinthians 6, 11 through 13. Our mouth has spoken to you freely, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Your own affections for the things of this world. And then he says, I want to speak to you as children, as, as a father who loves you. He says, set aside your preconceived ideas, these worldly ideas of right and wrong, and once again, Hear the voice of a loving father. And this is where we pick up in verse 14. And again, it says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. Now, the th first thing we need to understand is what he means by being bound together with unbelievers. Some translations say, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And, and frankly, in, in our culture, most of us, uh, this word yoke is lost in the culture in which we live today um, because really increased practices in farming technology and, and our separation from how our food and uh, animals and things like that are cared for. However, for centuries, from, from as far back as we can look, a yoke or, or a collar was used to pair two ox or two horses to pull a plow or, or to perform um, other types of labor. I think there's a picture up there that sh gives you a little picture of that. Um, they were made from wood and iron or just wood, um, leather, all kinds of things. But the yoke bound two animals together. 
so that they would work together under the guidance of their master. And that's really important. To work together, to pull in the same direction for the same purpose, for the benefit of their master. But, but what happens when you put two animals together which are not equal in character or capacity? What happens when you do that? Well, when I was about four or five years old and living on one of the small farms that we grew up on, we had a horse named Shasta. And Shasta was part quarter horse and part, I think, Clydesdale maybe. Big, very big. Kind of this white animal. He was huge, he was strong, but he was gentle as a kitten. And one day my dad decided he was going to he was going to disc up part of one of our pastures that needed some attention. And he had this old, old horse-drawn disc, and he was going to hook up Shasta to it. But he realized, well, Shasta had never really pulled anything. So he borrowed a neighbor's, a friend of his, uh, borrowed one of his draft horses, Jim. Um, Jim was experienced at pulling things. They, so he borrowed this draft horse, and after getting them both kind of tacked up, set in these big leather collars instead of a wooden yoke. It was a, these yellow or leather collars. The traces hooked up to the plow, to the disc. Dad climbed on top of this seat that's perched on top of the disc, and he got Jim and Shasta started. And it looked kind of similar to what you see up on the screen there. Um, Jim was a brown horse. Shasta was kind of white-colored. Well, all was well and good until... Jim decided Shasta was not pulling his fair share. <laughs> Shasta was just kind of wandering along, you know, like, I'm along for the ride. This is cool. I'm with a buddy. It's all right, you know. Uh, but he wasn't laying his chest into the collar. And so Jim reached over and grabbed the top of his neck with his teeth and bit down and held on. Well, apparently Shasta got the message, and they start pulling, but now it's no longer just a stately trod along the, the field there. They're at a full-bore run, and my dad now has got his legs wrapped around this little skinny post that's like a spring holding on for dear life as they are ripping across the pasture. You see... I mean, it's funny, it, and my, even as I recall this, my dad was telling this story to some friends of ours recently. But in all seriousness, I hope that we can, we can understand that this highlights our need to be equally yoked, equally bound, matched together if we are going to effectively pull in the same direction for the benefit of our master. And to do that, not only without harming ourselves, but those we love, those we perhaps are trying to witness to, to anyone that would be observing. And Paul is showing us that there is a better yoke than what the world offers. Look back again at our passage. The question we must ask is, how did the Corinthians, by association, you know, for you and I, how are we binding or yoking ourselves with the unbelieving and with the world? 
Well, Paul uses five words to describe how the Corinthians, and maybe you and I, are are binding ourselves to unbelievers in unhealthy ways, or binding ourselves to this world. He uses those five words, partnership, fellowship, concord, part, or agreement, or common. We'll, We'll work out each one of these separately. And he says partnership. It's a participation. The root of it means to belong to or to eat or drink. These are really the day-to-day tasks of life. The the Corinthians, and this was a problem that he had mentioned earlier in 1 Corinthians. They were eating and drinking with unbelievers in their community in ways that, that really brought shame to the name of Christ. In their daily living, not just eating and drinking, but just in their daily associations, they were living in such a way that it brought shame to the name of Christ and it was tearing down the gospel message. They they were eating meals in pagan temples. They were getting drunk. They were engaging in sexual morality. Even, even, he said, within the church this was happening. Within the body of believers. And again, he addresses those in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and chapter 10, and chapter 11. You see, they were attempting to yoke righteousness and lawlessness. How can we say as believers, we are bound to the Lord, we are yoked with the Lord, and yet persistently participate in drunken parties? Or or maybe even just simpler things, concerts that glorify shameful things. And and these aren't just the only things, but these are just some of the small areas. Maybe for for some in the past even, attending churches that, so-called churches that are leading people away from the word of God. Corrupting the word of God. Or, Or perhaps more personally participating in sexual activity when we're not married or outside of marriage. And that would even include sexual gratification through images, movies, media, social media. Paul is asking the rhetorical question, how is this possible? And the answer, of course, is we can't. We can't blend lawlessness with righteousness. And what about fellowship? Fellowship, I mean, that close mutual association, an intimate sharing of our lives, contributing to each other. Now, this is, this is more intimate than just maybe sharing a meal together. This is sharing intimate pieces of our lives. This is intimate and persistent friendship. Friendship with someone, a sharing of our physical and spiritual life with another human being. But, but how can a believer share their spiritual life with someone who does not believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, their Lord and Savior? 1 Corinthians 2.14, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. For us to be developing deep, intimate, personal friendships, how can we do that 
when as a believer we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, leading and guiding us, pointing us, convicting us, yet the partner that perhaps we have in that friendship or relationship is going a completely different direction, is not pulling as we are pulling with a whole heart. If we've evangelized a few people in our lives, we know this to be true. You will eventually meet the person that says, you know all that stuff you're talking about? It's just a fairy tale. It's a good story, a good, maybe even a good moral story. Or you might hear, I read the Bible and it makes no sense and, and, and it just seems to be full of contradictions. These things are spiritually prized. They, they necessitate that deep relationship with God, which then we share. Our friendships, our closest allies, mentors, buddies, or sisters must be those who share the heart of who and what we are. To invite an unbeliever into our, in essence, into our inner circle to speak truth to us would be like trying to mix light with darkness. Or as someone once said, it'd be like trying to turn on the dark switch. It's just, we laugh because it's foolishness, right? It's not possible. You can only turn on the light. And then there's concord. It means harmony, in agreement, to be a match. It's really the basis of our word symphony. And now, as could fellowship, this speaks of many areas of life, including marriage. Marriage should bring two very different people together and blend their lives. If, it, if we are holding to the biblical model, it is being bound together, it is being yoked together and saying, Christ, direct us. That we might pull in the same direction that your harvest that comes behind would be of you and the power of God. According to God, this is a physical and spiritual union. Marriages where sexual relationship are, is expressed in the purest and most joyful way. In marriage between a man and a woman is where children find their greatest safety. More than that, when we are married, we match our spiritual lives together. Marriage is to be an instrument for sounding really Proclaiming the beautiful music of the gospel message. It, it's a dying of self and a mutual submission to God through Jesus. We were at a conference uh, a few weeks back, and one of the one of the gals there, uh, Frankie Axtell, she right before we were getting, she she said these things about marriage as we're economically. Many of us might say in in hard times, marriage is really hard. But she says, Oh, that's not true. Marriage is always good if we are walking with Christ. Marriage is always good if we are followers of Jesus Christ. Marriage is always good. The dying to self, that's the hard part. <laughs> that's the hard part. A dying of self 
and a mutual submission to God through Jesus Christ. It's supposed to be the music of submission and grace and mercy and forgiveness and love. It's described there in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 30. We're told to submit to one each other out of reverence for Christ. It starts with a mutual submission. It's where submission, respect, and love flow both ways. Showing us the best way. It reflects the example of Jesus. It reflects that example through us to our children, our family, our neighbors, our classmates, our co-workers, to the whole world. But how could two people play this music if they are not playing with the same power and directed by the same conductor. It's just not possible. In fact, exactly what we see happen in many marriages, there is biting, there is a devouring, there is a harming. And then what about the next word, part? It means portion or common between or shared. At the core of, of what we believe, what do believers and unbelievers have in common? First of all, we don't share the same ultimate authority, do we? We are supposed to, whatever we do, in word or deed, is to be done in submission to who? Jesus Christ. Everything that we think and say. We don't share the same love of, the, of God through Jesus. We do not share in the same portion or inheritance after this life. And so we're divided, or perhaps we're divided in those relationships because we're looking and trying to pull towards something that is not equal in nature. The believer pulls for the things of this world because this is all there is. But the believer pulls for the inheritance that awaits us the glory that will yet be revealed, the joy of being in the presence of our Savior. We do not share the same power for godly living. We do not have a common source of truth, and the list can go on and on and on. Other than being created in the image of God and being offered eternal life, we have very little in common with the unbeliever. Our hope is not in this life, nor in its possessions, position, nor power. Those are all fleeting things that we know throughout the scriptures can be taken from us at any time. And this leads us to our final word, agreement. It's a joint agreement, a putting down together or consent with. Again, in friendship and in marriage and in business, how can we consent to a binding agreement when we do not have a supreme moral authority guiding and holding us accountable for those same decisions and agreements? How can the profit of our business or our lives, our work, be dedicated to the Lord when our partner has no desire for the things of God. 
or to even acknowledge the Lord. In fact, our lives, when we, when we come to Christ, our lives, our bodies now belong to him. Paul said, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. Our bodies are not our own. Whatever we do, we ought to wholeheartedly do as unto him. Amos 3.3, can two people walk together without agreeing on the direction? Matthew 6.24, no one can serve two masters, for they will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. We can't agree to partner, agreement, to consent to things that are in opposition to the one who purchased us. That we said we agreed to be purchased by. That we now say we are the potter, he, or he is the potter, we are the clay, and the clay doesn't sit, say to the potter, hey, don't touch me, don't do that to me. No, we surrender our whole lives. And, and listen, I know this is a... This is a sanctification process. This is a process of being made right. Positionally, yes, we are in Christ, made whole, pure. That's the way God sees us through the lens of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Yet we are also being made whole, yes? As believers, our direction, our destination is heaven, and our purpose is the glory of God. We're told there in verses 14 to 16 that binding or yoking ourselves with the world in these ways denies the truth of who we are. And Paul describes it there as like trying to bind goodness and sin, trying to mix light with darkness, making Jesus and Satan, that word Belial, Jesus and Satan, partners as it were. Or physically or spiritually uniting believers and unbelievers on earth and in heaven. It's just not possible. They are absurd propositions. And yet, I'm sure like me, we still sometimes try, right? And what is the result? Well, he mentions this in Galatians 5, 19 through 21. These things lead us to immorality, impurity, idolatry, sorcery, strife, anger, disputes, division, drunkenness, and all other manner of sin. That's what, we, that's what we're going to get when we try to yoke ourselves to people and the things of this world. Now, let me be really clear, because sometimes we can get this separatist mentality, you know, that we need to be separated from the world and have no contact Right? And, and I've definitely, at times in my life, have been kind of similar to that, or we know people like that. No, I am not, nor is God, proposing we separate ourselves completely from all contact with unbelievers. In fact, Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. And he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters. Really, he's talking about sinners there. For then you would have to go out of the world. You'd have to, like, you just have to leave. I'd have to take you up, which 
Praise God, that's going to happen one day. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous, you know, a persistent sinner, one who says, I know Jesus, but hey, God's good with me living this other part of my sinful life. No, he says, don't do this. Because bad company always corrupts good character. When we bind ourselves to those things or those individuals, we bind ourselves to the sin they bring with them. If we are to expand our ability to receive the power and love of Jesus and to display it to others, there is a better way. Jesus offers a better way. He offers a better yoke. Look at verse 16, that last half of it. For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said. I will dwell in them and I will walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out of their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you. Now, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus used the word yoke. When speaking to the disciples and the masses of people gathered around him, and, and he said these words in verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He is asking us to be yoked with him, bound to him. And if we do, we will find rest for our souls and we will have a right perspective of every relationship and how God would use us in every one of those relationships and how he would protect us from ungodly relationships. Verse 16, 17, is a quote from Ezekiel 37. And when God speaks to Israel, and, and as those adopted into this relationship, this community, we share the joy of knowing through Jesus that we become the temple of the living God. The Holy Spirit dwells within us at that place of salvation when we say, I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son that he came and lived a perfect life, offered his life in place of my own, was crucified, was resurrected, and now extends this gift to me as payment for my sin. He says, we then become indwelt by his spirit. He empowers us to know right from wrong, good from evil and light from darkness. The spirit allows us to discern the voice of Christ from the voice of the enemy and reminds us of our hope, our inheritance, because of our agreement to surrender our lives to him. Ephesians 1.13 tells us that we are sealed 
with that promised Holy Spirit, that he is that proof for us, that mark of identification. Yet there again in verse 17, we are reminded from Isaiah 52, 11, that we must then separate ourselves from what is unclean. We must be willing not only to run from sin, but to run to Jesus Christ. He didn't just call us out of sin, right? Hey, leave these, stop doing these things. You know, just stop being a bad person. No, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and tired of trying to do it in your own strength, and you will find strength and rest to glorify my name. We must separate ourselves from what is unclean. Not that we would separate and have no influence on the world, rather that we would not be influenced by the world as we live in it. And in fact, as we've heard many times, have a greater influence on the world than it has on us. That we would be effective ministers of the gospel. This is Jesus' prayer to the Father in John 17, 14 through 15. I have given them, speaking of the disciples here, speaking to you and I today, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Jesus says he gave us his word, the Bible, his word. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, we would not just survive in this place, but we would thrive in the mission that he has given us. Even when the world hates who we are and what we stand for. As Paul would say, that we would endure in all those things. And when we cast off the things of this world, when we embrace the truth of God and the power of God through the Holy Spirit, when we yoke ourselves to the Savior, we hear the voice of God as he says there in verse 18, and I will be a father to you. And, and he, Jesus used so many analogies of the father, of a loving father. He's talking about giving a fish or giving a stone or right? He's saying, listen, a good father, you on this earth, I mean, you're good fathers, you're good mothers, but you're not perfect. How much more who, the God, the father, who is perfect, will give you the best of everything if you will just seek it, if you'll cast off your affections for lesser things. If I would cast off the affections of lesser things, and he said, I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And, and the Apostle John echoes these words when he spoke of Jesus. And he said, but as many as received them, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God through Jesus Christ. And now we move to chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, 
In light of all these things, therefore, having these promises, beloved, having these promises that God is our Father, that he, we are his sons and daughters, that he's called us out of this, asked us to cast off these uncleans, he says, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. If we are yoked with Jesus, we experience true partnership with him and with others. And we're able to correctly share things of this world even with the world because they do not own us. We can eat and drink as unto the Lord, giving thanks to him as the creator of all things. Kind of those words that he spoke to to Peter, Peter, rise, kill and eat. Like what God has called clean, do not call it unclean. He's saying whatever we do, we do it as unto him. We can control our bodies, whether single or married, knowing his purpose and plan for them is the very best that it will be. Our fellowship with others can be pure because we are in intimate fellowship with him. Our friendships have their proper place and purpose and they become a source of help, encouragement, and strength rather than a path of destruction. Sharing our joy, our hope in Christ with the world fulfills and increases our relationship with the Lord. Harmony in marriage, in fact, in all relationships can be restored and we become that instrument in the, in the orchestra in that symphony of the song written by the creator, and we can sing together of the one who gave us a part, a gifted portion, an inheritance. And it's with resounding joy that he assigns, or he signs that agreement with his blood, securing our future, giving us hope for today and for tomorrow. That we're a gift that no moth can eat, no rust can corrupt, and no thief can steal. Amen. It echoes the words of Romans 8.38. And it will be up on the screen. Say it with me. For I am convinced that neither death nor life. Nor angels nor principalities. Nor things present nor things to come. Nor powers nor height nor depth. Nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Yeah. He ends there with the Lord Almighty. I love that. The one who holds all things in his hand, controls all things, directs the path of our life, and he says, no one can take them out of his hand. Jesus offers a better yoke, amen? amen? And this naturally leads us into a visible expression of that truth as we prepare to receive communion together. So as the worship team comes up, if you did not receive a communion packet, just raise up your hand real quick. Raise it up real high and hold it up and the ushers will bring you one. If by chance you didn't get one, raise it up high. Raise it up high if you didn't get one. In a few minutes, we're going to eat and we're going to drink together. 
But I want us to understand this is not some mystical religious rite. It is in fact an outward and tangible expression of, of the believers, our confident faith, and it actually has serious real-world life implications for us. And it's in fact serious enough for the Lord to remind us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It'll be up on your screen. For I receive, this is Paul writing to the Corinthian church as he wants to remind them of the truth of what communion means in light of all the dysfunction that was happening in the church at that day. He says, for I received from the Lord which I delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. His death for our sin. His death to give us an inheritance a portion. And this, this part, the next part, we, we cannot ignore this. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Then, and so to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats of the bread and drinks the cup without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. You see, this is a warning for the believers first. Because that's who Paul is writing to. He's saying as believers, if there is persistent sin in our lives, if there's unconfessed, unforgiven sin, if there are relationships that we have that we know that we're responsible for the brokenness and mess, and then we take the, the cup and we eat and drink and say, oh Lord, I remember the gift of your salvation through your death, burial, and resurrection, I remember as he, he said, we are actually denying the truth. And he, and he later on says, there's, there's some of you that are sick and some have even died because you're taking this very precious thing and making it common. To the unbeliever, one who has never surrendered their life to Jesus, one who has never said, I believe, as I mentioned earlier, that Jesus is the Son of God, the living God in human form, who came down, lived, died, was resurrected, that I might know freedom from sin, that I might be forgiven as I ask of him, will you forgive me? I believe in you, will you forgive me? For the unbeliever, warning carries the same price, the same judgment. And so for the believer or for the unbeliever, if you're here this morning and things aren't right, maybe perhaps it's to not take communion this morning until those things can be made right. But you could make them potentially right 
in this moment as the worship team plays, you could say, oh, Lord, forgive me. Oh, Lord, I want to live rightly with you. And this is what I'd like us to do. They're just going to play for just a little bit. And as we hold this cup, just bow our heads and quietly before the Lord, wrestle this out. Echo the words of the psalmist. Search me and know me and see if there is any ungodly way in me. And if you're, if you're an unbeliever, if you're not giving your life to the Lord today, and you want to change that, and you want to actually take communion for the first time with sincerity, with confidence, with boldness. If you want to say, I believe and I surrender my life to you, just will you raise your hand? Will you raise up your hand and say, I believe. I want to surrender. I want to know the risen Savior. For each one of us, may we consider this. Thanks for listening. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit us for one of our services. For service times, location, or even just to learn more about the ministry of Calvary Southeast, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you've been blessed by this week's teaching. Join us next week as we continue in our study together. 